0: Um, good afternoon everyone. I am Fran Tonkes from the Cities Program here at the London School of Economics and it's my pleasure to be in the chair this afternoon to host the session on Reading London as part of the Space for Thought Literary Weekend. Uh, there is some late breaking news. Many of you will know that we had hoped uh, to welcome Dan Cruikshank onto the panel today, but he I think he may have fluffed some lines and has had to do some retakes, so he is filming. Um, and not in London. Unfortunately, Hans Ulrich Alt is a late scratching because he is ill, as so many of us are in February. Um, However, the good news is that the rest of our panel is intact, um, relatively robust, and present, and I will introduce them quickly. There is more information about their illustrious biographies in the um, festival information. But we're going to take it rather unimaginatively in chronological order not their personal uh, (laughs) dates of birth, I think, but their um, domains of inquiry and study. So uh, on your far left, my right, is Leo Hollis, who is going to be speaking about his work um, coming out of his recent book on the Phoenix, The Men Who Made Modern London. A tour de force of biography, history, politics, philosophy, and experimental science, uh, in the words of uh, the reviewer in The Economist. In the middle, Rosemary Ashton is the Quain Professor of English Language and Literature at UCL, our sister college at the University of London, and she's going to speak about her current research on uh, the development of Bloomsbury and in particular the shaping of Bloomsbury in the 19th century. And last but not least, we'll also should I say OBE after that? No? No? Kenobi, if you like. Will Alsop um, is, of course, a leading British architect, designer, artist, uh, talker, uh, teacher, uh, and has various other strings to his bow. Um, and he will be speaking from the standpoint of, of the design disciplines today, but he may also range more widely than that. So our interest here, the city's program is an interdisciplinary program bringing together designers, planners, engineers and social scientists. So we're especially interested in how different uh, spheres of thought and practice speak to each other in the context of the city. And today we're looking in particular at how history, literature and architecture can help us to read the cities in general, but in particular London. So I will open it up to the panel and um, later open it up to all of you. Let me introduce Leo Hollis,
1: first of all. Thank you very much. Um, clearly, this is such a, a vast topic, um, but I wanted to very much stay within my own area, at least to begin with. London is not a modern city, and it never has been. Despite its deepest desires to fly unhindered into the future, London's pockets are filled with the stones of the past. Stand on any street corner and the feeling of historical vertigo is almost overpowering. Rather than a modern city, I suggest that London should be considered as a four-dimensional space, a place where one can stand still and yet travel through vast uh, stretches of time and space. Yet although it isn't modern, I would suggest, or at least admit, that it is trying. It is stuck in the eternal spin cycle of becoming. But although we have all this journeying and all this becoming, I will still suggest that we can at least give a date to that moment when this whole process began. In September 1666, a fire grew out of Thomas Fariner's uh, bakery on Pudding Lane and spread out through the rest of the city. Over five days, a huge swathe of the city within the uh, walls and then to the west of the walls was destroyed. On the Monday, the second day, the 3rd of September, the diarist John Evelyn made his way from his house in Deptford up to Bankside, where the Tate Modern now stands. And what he would later write in his diary was like a mask of destruction. The noise and cracking of thunder of impetuous flames, the shrieking of women and children, the hurry of people, the fall of towers, houses and churches was like a hideous storm. London was, but is no more. Six days later, Evelyn would make the same journey, this time by boat, getting off on the northern shores just by Blackfriars. What he he saw in front of him was like Lear's blasted uh, heath, all the way from Fetter Lane to the west, to the tower in the east. It was impossible to see what was street and what was houses. And as he slowly made his way up to St Paul's Cathedral, which he described as Golgotha, He felt the burning coals burning through the soles of his shoes. 44 years later, a German backpacker called Konrad von Offenbach made the same journey to St Paul's Cathedral. There he climbed up to the top of the dome, and like all the wits and bucks of the age, he carved his name into the stone. The cathedral itself had only officially been completed. If he had bothered to look over the parapet, he would probably have seen something that he had never seen before in his life. For in front of him was the greatest city in the world, larger than Paris, larger even than Tokyo at that time, with a population of over half a million. London was now the capital of Britain, which was itself the beacon of constitutional democracy. It had proved that the uh, uh, glorious revolution of 1688 was more than just a family struggle. (coughs) London was at the centre of this new state and was a bastion of liberty and toleration, religious freedom and the free press. It's interesting to note that the word metropolis was first used in the 1650s and within the next 50 years the city had certainly fulfilled its promise. London was already the financial capital of the world. It was at the heart of an emerging empire that now stretched from Calcutta all the way to Carolina. And so Conrad von Offenbach, what he would have seen in front of him, uh, was also, he was able to tell that this was a modern city emerging just in the fabric of the city itself. Buildings now stretched from Hyde Park all the way to Bethnal Green from Hoburn and Bloomsbury, across the river, down to Southwark and Deptford. He had also seen that in some ways the street plan had changed, that the idea of the city had changed, that he had now been dedicated to the circulation of bodies, money and goods. He had also been able to see the change in the design of the houses themselves. The old medieval uh, wooden structures had been replaced by brick and stone, it was ordered and classical. In certain parts of the city, new hotels, the aristocratic houses of the grandees replaced the old Tudor palaces that once stood along the Strand. And spotted around, usually on the fringes of the city, you would see the new uh, neighbourhoods uh, with a new, revolutionary new system of urban living, the terraced house. And finally, pinpricking the horizon, he would have seen the 51 churches of Christopher Wren. And finally, if he were able to uh, look down at his feet, he would say St Paul's Cathedral itself. A puzzle in stone that, in some ways, encapsulated everything that had happened in the 44 years beforehand. What Offenbach saw before him was the seedlings of the modern city beginning to germinate. The city as it was beginning to become For me, this is one of the great turning points in London's story. It certainly can be told through the stones of the city, but we must not forget that it is also a human story. It is the story of a generation who I believe are perhaps the boldest and the most innovative in the city's history. They are, or I would call them, the children of the Civil War. And we often credit the Victorians for their uh, industry and character. But I feel this is in many ways a prize that this generation deserve. It is a generation of men and women who grew up during the Civil War of 1642 to 48. And within this period, in these most fragile years of their life, the world was turned upside down. But it was not just their homes and their families that were being threatened. It was the very fabric of everything they knew to be true. If you asked many of these people what they thought they would be as children, they were appointed to their fathers. After the Civil War, <laughs> this was no longer possible. The nature of truth, the identity of power, even the role of God was questioned. And so in 1660, when Charles II came back, after the chaos of the Cromwellian period, the whole, uh, the whole I suppose, contract of society needed to be drafted anew. But while we have diaries and histories and paintings and plays and the book of statutes, we can also tell the story of this generation through what they left behind in London Stone. For as Walter Benjamin points out, they capture the subconscious spirit of the era. Most obviously, we can see this in the great monuments, in St. Paul's Cathedral, in the monument itself, but also in St. James's Square and perhaps even in Greenwich uh, Hospital. But beneath these individual works one could also read a ghost map that links these all together. Partly invisible, mostly lost, the ghost map of the modern city spreads out, bubbling underneath the contemporary city. For the purpose of this talk I want to briefly wander down four streets only, the A-roads, if you will, telling four stories as I go along. The first is of a thinker who wrote a book and designed a garden. The second is of an astronomer who built a city that was never built, who designed a city that was never built. The third is of a mathematician who measured this new city. And the final story is of a builder who changed more of the landscape than any of the others, but who is now remembered by little else than a street sign. (coughs) The first is John Evelyn, who escaped London during the Civil War to go to Europe. He was one of the first grand tourists. And when he came back, he was one of the first to promote the new styles of what he had seen before. In the very first years of uh, Charles II's reign, he promoted a brand new idea of what the city could be in uh, his book Fumifugum. He also promoted um, the new French architecture in his translation of the book Parallels. Yet it was in his garden at says, Court in Deptford that he spent his life puzzling over what English culture could look like. It was a mixture of all the styles that he had seen in Europe as well as filtering it through some native sensibility. He had a huge impact on many of the architects um, uh, of his period and particular, um, the second man who is Christopher Wren who in 1666 was a civilian professor of astronomy. His design for the new city, which is most probably one of the most iconic images of this period, was completed in less than a week after the fires were extinguished. But it was informed not just by his recent trip to Paris, but also by his long lifetime so far as a new uh, modern scientist. As a young man, he had spent Hours in his laboratory in Oxford conducting transfusions on a series of unlucky spaniels. He was fascinated by William Harvey's theories of the circulation of blood around the body. This work was essential to Wren's own understanding of what a modern city could be. To put it simply, Wren's plans for London in September 1666 could be reduced to the equation Paris plus spaniel equals London. Wren's plans were never realised, but some of their spirit was made real in the work of his very close friend, the scientific polymath Robert Hooke, who, in the bitter cold of March 1667, only a few months after the fires had been extinguished, started to measure out the new street plan. This set the template for what the new city would be. He widened streets, he started to organise the public spaces of the reborn metropolis. Together with Wren, Hook was responsible for many of the great uh, monuments of the new city. It was he who devised the monument, the single standing column uh, where the fire first began, but it was he who turned it into a zenith telescope in order to test the parallax of the stars. He was also Wren's right-hand man in the architectural office to complete the 51 churches within the city. And finally, it was Hook's equation after his death that Wren used. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, an equation to, in some ways, uh, I suppose, draw a catenary um, a curve that helped Wren devise his dome. The final story in this ghost map is a man baptized, If Jesus hadn't died for thee, thou wouldst be damned, Barbon. He cleverly, uh, later on in his life, changed it to Nicholas, which probably helped him in his business. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was the preeminent builder speculator of the age, starting with a few plots within the burnt neighbourhoods in 1668 and slowly getting more and more ambitious, building sites on the Strand, at St. James's <coughs> Square, and then finally Red Lion Square and the Bedford Estate near Lamb's Conduit Street, amongst others. Not only was he brilliant as, a, as, as an economist, uh, being way ahead of the game and the lawyers on the business aspects of building. But he also uh, was foresighted enough to standardise production. So therefore he was able to reduce the design decisions uh, that was necessary from the shape of the front parlour to even the flat pack um, delivery of certain things from banisters to sinks. What he did was provide in some ways the template for the London Terrace House that stayed good all the way up to the 1930s. All four of these men are among the architects of the new London that emerged out of the ashes of the Great Fire, but I believe their legacy is much bigger than that. Although many of their creations have disappeared, their stories still linger in the shape and idea of the modern city we have with us today. When we think about reading the city, the Stones of London are an ideal starting point, yet we must be alive to the spaces in between, in the things that first appear transparent and lost. In reverse of Marxist criticism of modernity, that all that is solid melts into the air, reading the city makes the invisible appear whole again. Thank you.
0: Thank you to Leo Hollis, and we resist the, the impulse to respond to any of that in this moment and move on to Rosemary Ashton. Thank you, friend.
2: Uh, Well, as Fran said, I'm uh, busily engaged at the moment in a large research project on the history of 19th century Bloomsbury, which is largely the cultural and intellectual history, but it must take into account uh, the building and architectural history of Bloomsbury as well, because it's in the 19th century that that area is fully developed. Uh, And I'm going to start by getting rid of my bugbear, the person who's constantly poking her nose into ideas of Bloomsbury, and that, of course, is Virginia Woolf. Um, Our idea of Bloomsbury comes inevitably from our notion of her and her Bloomsbury group. And we think, I suppose, of the place where where they lived for some of the time, Gordon Square in particular, as large houses, leafy squares... Uh, full of intellectual, artistic, literary people with uh, a certain amount of frisson of a sort of sexual uh, behaviour which was unusual uh, and so on and that's what we think of, I suppose, as Bloomsbury. We also, of course, because they were intellectuals we also think of it, and because the British Museum is right bang in the centre of it uh, we tend to think of it as the intellectual quarter of London. Well, that's okay, and that's fine, but actually the whole thing is much more complex, I think, and more nuanced than that and in a way um, one of the ways, one of the ways that, that I and my colleagues come at our project is it's not entirely through literature but we do feel that literature and the novel in particular which of course is the great form in the 19th century the novel in particular uh, can help us I suppose to read without being too pretentious to read the city and to read Bloomsbury in various cases uh, in a more nuanced manner than might otherwise be the case can remind us uh, as modern readers of what the city was like and what Bloomsbury, which is my interest, was like, particularly because novels take individual lives and deal with them in a way in w- in, in ways in which they show how embedded individuals are in their social context. And so, therefore, you do actually get quite a sense of what the the, where characters live can sometimes be quite important in novels. And there's a handout here. I hope you've all got it. Uh, I'm going to be reading just small extracts from some literary pieces. Of uh, course, three of the, the greatest uh, 19th century novels, although not my favourite, who was George Eliot, who was born in, War- in Warwickshire, but three of them um, lived in, uh, in, in Bloomsbury at one time or another. Trollope was born in Kettle Street, um, just near Rus- Russell Square. Uh, Dickens lived in both Doughty Street and then later Tavistock house uh, just off Tavistock Square uh, and Thackeray lived in Great Quorum Street um, in the early days of his marriage Uh, and they all have things to say about Bloomsbury but I've chosen perhaps some uh, examples which are are a little different maybe now if you look at um, what I've headed number one in the handout it's uh, an extract from a novel by Benjamin Disraeli he was a novelist of course before he became uh, a famous um, politician and prime minister Vivian Gray, published 1826 to 7 and this is just a little uh, uh, extract here. Uh, a couple are talking and what was the card? Oh, you need not look so arch. The old lady was not even the faithless duenna. It was an invitation to an assembly or something of the kind at a locale somewhere as Theodore Hook or John or John Wilson Croker would say between Mesopotamia and Russell Square now of course you'd have to be in with this in 1826 to know that Theodore Hook was, the, uh, was a very uh, Tory uh, journalist and editor of the satirical journal John Bull which was busy all through the 1820s attacking uh, reform and, and those who were uh, trying to make for reform uh, leading up to the Great Reform Act of 1832 and he is quite scathing about Bloomsbury, particularly about that institution uh, which was being built in 1826 and opened in 1828, uh, none other than the University of London, now of course University College London on Gower Street, uh, which was of course a radical institution, uh, opened to people of all faiths and none, uh, and Hooke was one of the uh, main attackers of uh, Univ- the University of London when it started up. Um, John Wilson Croker was a Tory MP and, uh, in fact, I think he was uh, Chief Secretary of the Admiralty or something at, at this time. And he was famous and went on being famous throughout the 19th century because he was, his, his question was picked up by Thackeray, amongst others. He was famous for a question that he asked in the House of Commons during a debate in about 1825, I think. Uh, and where, pray, is Russell Square? And this was to give an indication, you see, that um, that in 18, the 1820s. Most of Bloomsbury was not yet built. There was hardly anything north of Great Russell Street. Um, Now, for this, perhaps I should stop, and in case you're hazy about the boundaries of Bloomsbury, um, give you an idea. Um, And if you look at the, there's an estate map at the top here, um, and you look, it's roughly a square slightly on its end. And the northern, the, 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 the boundary going up northeast, that's Euston Road that's the northern boundary of Bloomsbury one coming down to the right is Inn Road, that's the eastern boundary the slightly wiggly one, you can't see all the ends but it a, looks a bit wiggly uh, going across the bottom, is Holborn leading towards New Oxford Street which itself was only cut through in the middle of the 19th century, before that it was the famous rookery of St. Giles's uh, near St. Giles's church uh, to St. Giles in the Fields and the left hand western boundary going up is Tottenham Court Road so and that's your, that's your area but most of it was not built on uh, in the early part of the 19th century Russell Square was begun in 1800 when the Duke of Bedford whose estate you see there uh, the, the shaded area at number one which is quite a large part of Bloomsbury but not all of it um, the Duke of Bedford uh, employed speculative builders James Burton first of all and then <laughs> Thomas Cubitt to develop the streets and squares north of great Russell Street, Um, and Russell Square was one of the first of them. Uh, But it was not thought in um, parliamentary circles and down in Westminster and near the court and so on to be uh, much of an area uh, that would be fashionable, and that was to continue right through the 19th century, all the way through, everybody always said, Bloomsbury, not fashionable. (laughs) Now, if you look at number two, this is from Dickens' Pickwick Papers, and Dickens will give us a sense, we can get it, of course, from uh, from census reports and so on, but Dickens gives us a sense of the, the part of Bloomsbury which is associated with the law from Pickwick Papers there, 1837. There are several grades of lawyers' clerks. There's the article clerk, who's paid a premium and is an attorney in perspective, who runs a tailor's bill, receives invitations to parties, knows a family in Gower Street, and another in Tavistock Square, who goes out of town every long vacation to see his father, and who keeps live horses innumerable, and who is in short, the very aristocrat of clerks. And then he goes on to the sort of the lower (laughs) clerks, who don't (laughs) live in Bloomsbury. Now, the idea here is that, and we get it through Dickens's humour here. The idea here is that there's a kind of hierarchy of, um, of of legal people in the legal profession, many of whom live in Bloomsbury. And if they live in Bloomsbury, for them, although Bloomsbury is not fashionable, uh, it's a kind of indication of status. Uh, so, for example, uh, Bedford Square, which is one of the older uh, of Bloomsbury squares, begun in the 1770s, uh, had uh, on its Eastern side still has a rather wonderful huge house, number six in the middle of the square, which was the official home of the Lord Chancellor until about the eighteen fifteen. And a great many judges and um, high-up lawyers lived in Luzi's squares right from the beginning of the 19th century. And the more struggling lawyers, the type that Dickens knows about, of course, from his own experience and so on, uh, they tend to live in the smaller streets roundabout. They hang on to the skirts of these um, legal squares. And why why, why Bloomsbury for, for lawyers and judges? Well, because it was quite handy location-wise for the inns of court further east, handier than those other estates which were being built at the same time in the early 19th century, also by Burton and Cubitt very often, the Portland estate, Regent's Park, Pimlico to the south, Belgravia. Um, which were, of course, closer to fashion and the court and parliament. Um, but, you know, you have an acres away, you have the Inns of Court and the City of London, and Bloomsbury, as is often said, is rather handily placed in the middle. So you've got the lawyer of Now, if you look at number three on the handout, this is punch, which is always a very good um, uh, indicator of, um, you know, c- a straw in the wind about the social movements and, 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 and the nuances of social strata and 1855 you've got um, Flunkiana here, you've got the flunky, the butler who does not approve of Bloomsbury no ma'am, I don't object to the house for it's hairy and the fiddles is good but the fact is that all my connections live in Belgravia <laughs> so he feels that here he is um, and it's not grand enough Bloomsbury's not grand enough As I said, actually, Thomas Cubitt is largely responsible for a number of Bloomsbury squares and also for uh, Belgravia. To look over on the next page, you'll find um, from uh, not such a well-known book by Wilkie Collins, Heart and Science, the 1880s. And he's describing uh, um, Bloomsbury, the broad district stretching northward and eastward from the British Museum. So all the bit that I've been talking about being developed from 1800 onwards is like the quiet quarter of a country town set in the midst of the roaring activities of the largest city in the world. This haven of rest is alike out of the way of fashion and business and is yet within easy reach of the one and the other and that sort of reinforces, does it not our idea of Bloomsbury in the middle close enough to fashionable life but not of it in the west and close enough to business the world of business in the city of London in the east but not of it uh, so middling really is the picture that we get middle class, middle uh, district and of course that's reflected in the 1860s when um, London got its some postcodes as it were when, it's, when Bloomsbury is, is WC1 West Central it's thought to be West Central Uh, Number five is from E.V. Lucas, A Wanderer in London, not a novel, kind of memoir, 1906. So looking back a bit, and I'll just go in a few lines in. Bloomsbury, talking about students and visitors boarding houses in 1906 it has few shops and many residents and it is a stronghold of middle class respectability and learning the British Museum is its heart its lungs are Bedford Square and Russell Square and Gordon Square and Woburn Square and its aorta is Gower Street which goes on forever everybody is rude about Gower Street uh, long, gloomy uh, which is absolutely true um, <laughs> but um, there it is Uh, Lawyers and law students live here, you get this again, to be near the inns of court. Bookish men live here to be near the museum. And Jews live here to be near the University College School, which is non-sectarian. That's true, of course, also about University College London itself, as I've suggested. Um, The school was started up a couple of years after the university with the same um, open access to people of all faiths. Bloomsbury, says Lucas, is discreet and handy. It is near everything, and although not fashionable, uh, anyone I understand may live there without losing caste. So not fashionable, but not disgraceful either. Now, here's an interesting thing, and I'm, going to do, I'm coming towards the end here, but this is quite interesting, I think. It belongs to the Ducal House of Bedford. Which has given its names very freely to its streets and squares. That's there are all the Bedford avenues and places. The the Russell Russell family, all the Russell names, and all the Southampton names that you find in the streets because the the Russells married the Southamptons in the 17th century. But if you look back at the plan, on the other side, you see that that Lucas is and people often do this, is mixing up Bloomsbury with the Duke of Bedford's Bloomsbury estate. Now, the Duke of Bedford's Bloomsbury estate is a very large part of Bloomsbury, but it's not quite even the half of the whole of Bloomsbury, and it's worth remembering that, because that is something that also um, one can tease out nuances and differences with. You see that on the estate map, the next largest uh Piece of ground is owned by the Foundling Hospital. Um, it's now now of course we've just got the Foundling Museum in Coram's Fields, where the Foundling Hospital was. But there's a, a large part of the streets and squares around there were owned by the Foundling Hospital, um, and it's the Duke of Bedford who uh, tends to you know uh, be associated with Bloomsbury. Uh, but uh, there are these other aspects to it as well. Now all the Dukes of Bedford were very clever um, all the way through. They always put extremely restrictive leases, con- leases in, the, uh, in, the, in the contracts um, in the contracts for um, leasing out their houses or selling the houses. You weren't allowed to carry out any trades from uh, any houses on their estate. Um, you weren't allowed to put up a. Brass plaque. When University College School, which was mentioned in the Lucas here, um, put up a brass plaque, University of London School, reasonably enough, in 1830 when it opened, um, the Duke of Petras agent pursued um, the, you know, the university uh, endlessly for two years, I think, to get that plaque taken down. Not allowed, even to advertise um, a, a school. University College itself, by the way, is not on Duke of Bedford land, it's on Mortimer estate land, otherwise perhaps it wouldn't have been allowed to be built. The Dukes of Bedford wanted their housing to be uh, lived in by respectable families and they didn't want any trades or any subletting or any of that sort going on, and so they had very restrictive leases. Um, No pubs, no shops within the the, the square, really. but by the end of the 19th century some of the leases, that often they were 99 years, were falling in uh, and some of the houses, in spite of all the best efforts of the, Duke of, the Dukes of Bedford and their agents, some of the houses were, uh, were becoming sublet, were becoming boarding houses because by the middle of the 19th century the more respectable families were inevitably moving further west to be more fashionable over towards the Portland estate or, or wherever it might be. And so boarding houses, uh, student lo- lodging houses and so on moved in, Uh, so by the end of the 19th century, in other words, just before the person whose name I will not say again, uh, (laughs) moved in in 1904, uh, Bloomsbury, or parts of Bloomsbury are beginning to become a little shabby genteel, Um, and this this is, you you can look at it one way or another, you can can actually praise the Dukes of Bedford for having um, uh, ensured that even today Certain parts of Bloomsbury are still very nice. <laughs> you could you could think like that. Or you could think, you know, bad old Duke of Bedford um, not allowing any progress and so on to occur. Well, in 1890, um, the, the Parliament passed an act to, after a lot of agitation for about 20 years by various people, to um, remove the gates and bars on London streets. Now, this is something you might not think about, you might not realise that throughout the 19th century there were bars across a lot of the streets to stop vehicular traffic horse-drawn traffic and so on and, uh, and the hoi polloi as well from uh, going down residential streets. Now, the Duke of Bedford of course was not the only landowner who had gates and bars across his streets but he had a great number of them and he was the last great landlord to obey the Act of 1890 uh, and remove his gates and bars uh, there was a on the top of Gordon Street to stop people coming down from Euston Road uh, taking a shortcut down Euston Road uh, to, let's say, to Oxford Street. No, they would have to go along and down Grey's Inn Road. They'd have to come down one of the outer boundaries, not to come through any of the Duke of Bedford's nice streets and squares. Well, here's a poem um, published in 1891, Ye Bars and Gates, which you've got to imagine being sung, I'm not going to sing it, I'm sorry, but I do have the accent, uh, to Ye Banks and Brays of Bonnie Doon. Uh, it goes, Ye bars and gates of Bloomsbury, how can ye stand so silent there? How can ye, knowing ye are doomed, from some small signs of grief forbear? He'll break his heart, will Bedford's Duke, whose grandeur county councils spurn, as he bemoans his feudal rights, departed never to return ye bars engage your coming doon. no more he'll block the freeman's path and make the traveller lose his train or rouse the British cadman's wrath we'll light some heart, we root ye up and leave the streets of London free and there's but one will mourn your loss and that's his grace, the Duke of B <laughs> so, that, so that was the Duke of Bedford now I'm, I'm going to finish on something that you may not recognise as having any relation to Bloomsbury at all and that is Peter Pan uh, this is the other Bloomsbury the Bloomsbury that's not the Duke of Bedford's Bloomsbury the, the, the Bloomsbury more or less roughly speaking to the east of Southampton Square going across to Grayson Road and the other Bloomsbury um, was always um, uh, you know the, because the, the, it didn't have the restrictive leases and so on was always a bit more crowded the, the stock of housing is a bit uh, inferior and people did uh, uh, carry out trades out of their windows and doors and back doors and so on um, and in fact uh, it's the only, only a couple of very small streets just east of Russell Square appear in the Booth poverty maps which are of course here in the LSE library the Booth poverty maps, the famous pov- poverty maps of 1888-1890 um, and only a, uh, most of Bloomsbury of course is is not, not aristocratic, that's red, I think, it's yellow, it's respectable middle class, um, but one or two bits of sort of deep purple, indigo, black, to suggest uh, large populations of unemployed, po- poor, and criminal classes. Uh, and there are some little small streets like Compton Street, Colonnade, um, uh, just east of uh, Russell Square. And J.M. Barrie uh, lived there when he first came to uh, London. But I'm going to read you um, his preface. To the original stage version of uh, Peter Pan in 1904. <coughs> I suppose if you thought about where, Peter, where the Darling family might live, you might just say, "Oh, I don't know," or you might think Kensington, mightn't be you? Because we know that when uh, when he wrote Peter Pan, he was living in Kensington, and, and you know, the, 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 with the, the Llewellyn Davies boys uh, playing with him in, in Kensington Gardens. Um, but here he is very deliberately telling us where he's setting uh, Peter Pan or rather the the Darling family's home. The night nursery of the Darling family, which is the scene of our opening act, is at the top of a rather depressed street in Bloomsbury. We have a right to place it where we will, and the reason Bloomsbury has chosen is that Mr Roger once lived there. So did we, in days when his thesaurus was our only companion in London, and we, whom he has helped to wend our way through life, have always wanted to pay him a little compliment. The Darlings therefore lived in Bloomsbury. Uh, now Roger of Roger's Thesaurus um, w- had indeed lived in uh, in Bloomsbury. He lived also just to the east of Russell Square in Bernard Street in the 1820s, when he was in fact um, a, a GP. Uh, he only took to writing this thesaurus when he was about 70. 70 so he had had an active life as a socially concerned uh, uh, medical practitioner to the east in the eastern part of Bloomsbury. Uh, in Bernard Street as I said and when J.M. Barry came down to London for the first time from Scotland in 1885 as a young uh, hard up journalist hoping to make his way in London, he arrived at St Pancras Station on the Euston Road he walked down Gray's Inn Road to look for a lodging a cheap lodging and he found one in Guildford Street which is one of these streets again to the uh, east of Russell Square and then an even cheaper room in a tiny road called Grenville Street um, uh, all very close to Colonnade, and these, these just at the time, 1885, just at the time when Booth was doing his his, his uh, poverty map. So he really was living in a very poor room at the top of a house in the poorer part of Bloomsbury. And he talks in his uh, memoirs about uh, going out and buying a me bun from the, um, the the baker at the corner and so on and so Barry uh, sets uh, the Darling's family in this rather poverty-stricken part of Bloomsbury you might think well that's odd because we all know that um, you know when, when the children fly away the parents are out at an evening party, well they are but he actually uh, Barry tells you in very long um, instructions uh, dramatic uh, uh, instructions, he's rather like George Bernard Shaw in this respect, you can hardly get to the play for all the, the uh, indications of what, what, what it's got to look like and, and so on and the description of the room and in fact Uh, the the children's coverlets on their beds are made from Mrs Darling's old dresses and Mrs Darling has made the evening dress which she's wearing when she goes out her husband works in the city uh, but he's not (laughs) I think not quite doesn't quite have the the, the cash in that it does at the moment I think he's he's a hard working pen pusher in the city I think but they're not well off Well, Um, I'm going to finish there just by saying, I hope you get a sense from this, Um, there's only only a few examples, but you can get a sense, I think, um, not exclusively, but you get a very lively sense from literary examples, don't you, of the character of an area at a particular time. Um, It's a kind of embeddedness, which I think is rather interesting, uh, 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 that, that... writers will take note of, because what they are interested in, particularly novelists, is usually um, an aspiring hero or heroine, and people who aspire, of of course aspire to live in a better place than they live in now and so on, and so you do get this sense of where Bloomsbury is or was in the 19th century, in the middle, middle class, respectable, not fashionable, (laughs) but not slummy either on the whole. it's really sort of, at the heart, and of course it's, I haven't talked about it, but this is what, it, what my project is really all about, it's the heart of the intellectual and cultural centre of London, and that too is a growth of the 19th century, starting with the BM as, as already there, but being extended by Robert Smirk during the 19th century, and with new institutions like University College London, then the Bedford College for Ladies, and um, the Working Men's College, and various other in, uh, educational institutions being founded in the area that's what gave it its um, character as it were uh, the character that it has by the time that the people who I'm not going to mention move in in 1904
0: Rosemary Ashton we will of course all have to go and take a field trip um, this <laughs> afternoon but before we do uh, maybe take a final imaginative turn around London with Will also
3: well I'll try I've drawn the, the short straw to a certain extent and so that you have the authority of history behind you which I might take issue and say it's also fiction of course but um, nonetheless there's a lot to be read there's a lot to be learned uh, about those particular areas and of course many other parts of London and um, but of course, the London that I've been asked to sort of think about for a little bit, with those of this afternoon, um, is really like trying to read. And the subject of reading does, does assume that there's a certain amount of literacy, doesn't it? Which we'll come back to in a minute. But um, it's like trying to read a book that's still in being written, and that's actually rather, rather difficult in some ways. So you have to excuse me if I start fumbling around because I don't have the authority of history, it's what's happening now that interests me and a certain sort of phenomenological um, experience within cities which interests me a lot and so obviously that's shared in in all cities to a greater or lesser extent and I have to say that there are issues related to cities. I remember quite recently accidentally discovering Nancy in uh, Western France not knowing anything about it, and you just, observe, and actually it comes back to this notion of having no background at all, as I say there by mistake, and then there's plus Stanislav which is beautiful, and you know it's beautiful because you observe, as you sit there with the gin and tonic, not one, not two, not three, but four different couples kissing. I think that's actually rather wonderful, but a very set piece, and uh, I won't go into the history of that, although it is. An interesting history, but I'm only spurred on to find out the history because of the, of the marvels of the place. It does sort of beg all sorts of questions whether we actually think about when we're creating buildings and places as we are all the time, London is changing all the time in response to uh, all, all, all sorts of things, of course. Um, do we actually think about sitting and doing nothing and also falling in love? Probably not. <laughs> But I do anyway. But that's that's that's, that's my that's my problem. <laughs> or if you're trying to read the city, you know, I mean, are you? It's like a bit like reading a painting, isn't it? If you go to a classical painting, it's sort called of allegory or whatever, because you don't see it until you are told or you read about that particular thing. Then you look at the painting in, in another way. So you know, we will now be looking at Bloomsbury in a completely different way. <laughs> well, we? I hope so. I did spend a lot of time in Bloomsbury. The architectural association. You have another one of those. Uh, at those educational institutions in Bedford Square, But nonetheless, I think if you compare that with an abstract painting, there's nothing to read about that, really. Nothing. And I feel that the same is true of many of the buildings that go up in London. And of course, this has been, after the modern movement, this has, uh, this has been a point of some concern. So we can see that in somewhere in the middle of the 70s, there was the idea of post-modernist architecture invented. It's the idea that there should be, that architecture should have a narrative behind it. It was a distinct failure, of course, insofar that it was suddenly realised that if there was this sort of narrative and there was this sort of mock historical reference and all these other things attached, it might help you get planning permission. And you can see that this became a very cynical act and that uh, you can see in certain places which will remain nameless, um the results of these things and it was taken on by rather cheap developers of course as these were all developers weren't they really and yes. I mean they're just making a buck to weren't they yes. <laughs> in all this i think that's uh, that's an important point to, to remember you know it is commerce that drives an awful lot of the city that we live in and uh, they will use anything because in those days i don't know what the planning permission whether you needed it, you just needed to own it. Didn't you needed to own it, yes. yeah. Then you could build it. Yes. And you had an idea that uh, it would raise you a bit sort of cash. Yes. In one form or another. Well, of course, there's a huge distinction between those periods and um, then and today, insofar and that you have to go through an accountable process by submitting for a planning permission, which costs money, um, to be subject to all sorts of criticism, often hatred, sometimes love. To get a permission to create value—that's a very fundamental difference. It brings all of that decision-making about what's going to come into being, and you'll see it around the city today. We might come back to that. But of course, within the city, you get wonderful accidents, and these, I think, are the character of what we read, of what we we actually feel, because you can see it. You can see that, say particularly in Southwark, you no know, great swathe of Southwark being ripped apart by the introduction of the railway. I don't know whether anyone objected to that at the time, but of course it goes on. You know, with the Thames Link 2000 about to build another viaduct through Southwark, um, through uh, Borough Market, mm-hmm. it uses a great furore mm-hmm. Why? I wonder if they wondered about why about that in the first place. History goes on, unravels itself in, in, in new ways, and it, of course it could be that there will, it will be miles because Borough Market might move somewhere else, and good for you if you happen to live next door to it. I think that's fine. But so that we are in a constant flux, and it's that sort of very definition of history that actually that gives meaning, which makes it difficult for people like me. So you make my life difficult, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not intentionally, I accept, but you probably. But that's a dissection of infrastructure. Obviously, it becomes slightly easier for a railway because people understand it. But what about roads? What about the Westway? What about when you come in um, from Heathrow Airport? Because it's, uh, the rapid expansion of the city, you know, with respect the, the metropolis was tiny, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Compared absolutely. to to, to, to that? But you come in along the along the A4, you know the M4 turns into the A4, and you go through Hammersmith. there's uh, Hammersmith flyover itself. Rather marvellous structure underneath, the, don't you know? Please say yes. <laughs> 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 Ruined recently by blocking in the, the side. So aesthetically it's been rather destroyed by Hammersmith and Fulham Council or somebody worse. And um, <laughs> But it does provide that umbrella for people coming out of the uh, of Hammersmith, uh, Odeon, or whatever it's called, the Apollo, I think, these days. And you know, that's perhaps a place where people might fall in love after having been to a terrific concert, and they're <laughs> feeling in good mood, and they've probably <laughs> got some alcohol inside them as well, which also helps. But the reality is, and you see it all around us, that people, on the whole, don't like change very much. They feel uncomfortable with change, and yet they all enjoy it. But it's the thought of change, not change itself, which uh, which creates, creates difficulty. So it's true today, and I'm exaggerating deliberately here, you can build anything. You, you referred from going from timber construction to bricks and stones um, and something rather, rather posh, but actually that's what you had, you didn't have the choice of materials that uh, designers have today. You can do anything. And yet, in this real magical moment, which I think we have at present, where there is no, um, there's no particular overarching style or methodology or theory. There's huge potential diversity in what this city can become and is becoming to a certain extent. Not enough for me, is that it seems to engender not amongst the public, the general public, whatever that means, but amongst those people who are in that position that advise various bodies, often sitting as sort of quasi-sociologists. My dear,
0: I'm a genuine sociologist. Oh, she's a
3: real. <laughs> so, um, she is fine. <laughs> is that? that excitement of that diversity that could be in the city and we see hints of it here and there that could be, is actually cramped we've seen, and I was very interested in uh, even importing this stuff from overseas the other side of the ocean that actually there are things imported from Holland who were imported actually from somewhere else but that's another, another question So everything Dutch is alright for a moment and that's the pass is over, that sort of passes over when you rise, it falls apart. But <laughs> nonetheless, you know, the expectation of how long a building lasts uh, is, is very different to the, the buildings that uh, both of you uh, were, were referring to, quite rightly. It make buildings make way for future change. And I think that's an important point. We will always feel uncomfortable, but why should we care? We'll all be dead. It is the good news. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, there are differences. On one level, you work in order to write some money that you might then be able to write for your children. That's one attitude. The other say, spend it before you die. I think we do spend it before we die, and I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. But we are, and our city, that we're of this city, is controlled by a never-increasing number of people and I think it's at the expense of the creativity and the imagination of the architect, sadly. It's as though the architect themselves need to be controlled by people who actually don't know what they're talking about. I'm not saying that the architects know what they're talking about either. (laughs) But that that sort of notion of exciting uncertainty I think is something that we don't tap into and we don't see in a whole. So there are one or two buildings of course some grow in so well that they're hated when they're built and they become loved I'm thinking there in particular at the National Theatre by people didn't like it it's a lump of concrete It it goes a funny colour when it rains but actually I think today it's well loved think of some of the apartments, some of the that's actually thrown on some of the housing states after the Blitz. And the Blitz was very, I think, marvellous. The equivalent of driving roads through through bits of London actually makes you feel uncomfortable. Things have to change. But if you think of some of those states, which we are knocking down, perhaps we shouldn't be knocking those down, actually. Perhaps they should just change. Perhaps they should just be adapted and things added. I think there's complexity which we're giving up for the sake of clarity. And clarity isn't always a desirable thing. And maybe, maybe, it would be very interesting for the city in the future to respond to certainly what I've observed in doing lots of work with members of the public, whether it's in Croydon or Southwark or or some of the other boroughs here, to say nothing of other cities altogether, is that the general public actually are much more imaginative, much more creative, have much more ambition to actually see and be tested and to, to do something which is challenging. You know, that's a rather strange word. know if you've been to the Chris O'Feely exhibition at the Tate Britain that says some of the images will be challenging. It means they're actually pornographic, but it doesn't stop people going in. But you wonder about this, would it be possible to have a part of this city just to try and trying I think is very important that's not controlled that's a sort of planning free zone you can do what you like on the other hand the whole of Hong Kong is like a planning free zone isn't it and there are problems attached I mean there are diseases, people who too close to each other, it's unhealthy but it's jolly exciting and people are drawn towards these things you know, clarity, I often think that Paris is incredibly boring <laughs> don't you think and many of the places that we're supposed to love were actually done not through any sort of notion, notion of democracy they were built and planned by dictators and I think that's one of the great things about London is that there is no real, there are bits of master plans that have been realised but not many it's just a place that's evolved And I feel that our new buildings are an evolution. but I wish they'd evolved more in a slightly more diverse way. I could go on, but I think that's quite enough.
0: Thank you, everyone. You may indeed yet have an opportunity to go on if some of the planners in the audience want to um, come back on any of those points. May I suggest that we open up uh, the floor for comments and questions. Uh, we have microphones roving, as we say, um, down both aisles, and I will uh, take three, say three, at a time, and then we can take them back to the panel. Tobias.
4: Good afternoon. Uh, I had a question at all the panelists um, asking you to comment on a remark by uh, Saskia Sassen, who's an urban sociologist as well. And she was commenting that uh, cities, she felt, are losing their legibility uh, due to trends of uh, homogenization in architecture and also digitization of a lot of aspects of uh, urban life. And she gave the example of um, office buildings basically that you can't really see what an office building is supposed to uh, have as a function anymore as compared to 19th century office buildings, which were quite clear in uh, what was their function. So, yeah, if you could just comment on whether cities are losing their legibility. Thanks.
5: Two two points. One is um, the point that Mr Hollis raised about um, Wren's grand design and how much we lost by that not being uh, realised. Uh, that was, of course, the whole business of the city of London evolving rather than uh, the Houseman effect, as in Paris. Would it have been the Houseman effect? Would we lose a great deal? And of course, we, you know, there are things that we've lost, like the, the street that would have connected Chelsea Hospital right up to okay. Casement Palace, the completion of Whitehall Palace, all those kind of things. And the second point really is on the quality of buildings in London now. And while there are some striking examples of modern architecture, and by no means in the Prince Charles School of, of reproduction, Uh, I don't adhere to that at all. Uh, Do you think we need uh, much more quality control? Um, It's it's not so much a planning matter, it's actually a building quality matter, and which certainly previously the Fine Arts Commission has had a role in terms of some of the more distinguished, important sites in the city.
0: Okay, thank you for all of those comments and questions. The first question was about whether or not cities in general and perhaps London in particular is is losing its legibility, uh, losing their legibility. Um, The second question is about more rapid uh, revolutionary evolution with uh, another dig at the planets and then finally a dual question firstly about what has been lost in losing Ren's grand design but other designs for the city and should there be tighter uh, constraints on design quality in building? Leo, can I ask if you would like to take up one of those? Or...
1: Okay, I'm not too sure whether I can sort of answer all three, but I'll, I'll start off with, with um, Wren's plans. I mean, Wren's plan, um, every time I go in a taxi and tell, tell them what I'm doing, they sort of say, oh, it would have been lovely to have Wren's plans with all those straight streets. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I think it's a total blessing that we never got Wren's plans. It would have been a disaster. Uh, not only for London but for the whole of Britain I think if we had spent a decade or so slowly building up the streets according to some royal plan um, for Wren to have done that uh, Charles II would have had to have brought up the whole of the city. What uh, happened when um, Wren's plans were, were chucked out and Wren was not sad about this uh, I don't think he ever really uh, expected it to, to see the light of day was uh, Something that I think is, is if one could talk about Londonness, is is certainly an aspect of that personality, of that character, is that everybody had to build their own house. Everyone had to pull up their own bootstraps, and London grew, not necessarily totally organically, but it it helped itself. And I think that was absolutely part of what made it such a vital and exciting place within that very small amount uh, of time. Moving on to, the, in some ways, the sort of the second question, I, I, I think I might answer it sort of slightly more obliquely than than, than you might ask. Um, uh, talking about uh, whether it's losing its its its, its sort of character, um, it seems to me that that one of the big questions of, of 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 our times at the moment is is certainly with the rise of sort of digital culture, and, and I'm pretty sure we are going to be able to buy by the end of this year a computer that can hold every film ever made for under £2,000. So the problem isn't necessarily how do we remember, it's how we forget. Um, And I think we need to do that and we need to think about how we forget certain parts of the city, just as much as we are spending our time preserving areas. Um, I don't have necessarily a solution to that. Um, uh, I don't know if that is a planning uh, idea or whether that is a a theoretical way of looking at the city as a whole. I just know that um, uh, there are as it were boundaries um, and certainly there are things that work in London better than others Um, and I also think that that things certainly take slightly longer to bed in than we hope. Um, If we look at the O2 centre, it was a disaster if you look at it um, sort of nine months after it was completed but now I think we're slowly finding a space within the city which wasn't its initial design. In the same way, uh, I think it will be very interesting that, uh, I'm not too sure when it's going to occur but uh, Will was talking about the West Way and that was sort of considered a, uh, a, you know, a shocking incursion into the uh, into the west of London. But I suspect in a few decades, if not in a few years, we will start putting preservation orders on it and seeing it as some kind of national monument and when there is a need to change the infrastructure. There will be a battle about holding that as a historic um, uh, monument to a particular time in our history. So I don't have an answer, um, but 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 I think that that that, that in some ways it's, it is it is it is perhaps a question that you can attack from two ends. Rose, might you say
0: something about this question of legibility, thinking about this. the nineteenth-century fabric and?
2: Yes, well, uh, what struck me there was, and picking up really from what, what um, Leo's just been saying, is that um, homogenization, well, we may think that about modern buildings... Um, but of course, those of us who are looking back at history, we, we're lucky in, in lots of ways because we can sort of see that taste changed and that there were complaints and groans and moans, uh, and, that, and, and, and that, that, that we are in a position to have a kind of multiple view of, of, of the past. For example, if you take Bloomsbury, if you take the, the Bedford uh, Estate. Its in Bloomsbury, and you take the first of all the the, the Burton buildings and then the cubit buildings, the Georgian architect- architecture of most of the bloomsbury squares uh, well by you know we, we tend to find them beautiful, I think and well proportioned and so on, and they were uh, at the time but by the by eighteen sixty tastes had changed uh, and so, you know uh, uh, Gower Street in particular, which isn't that the handsomest, it's true, but it was thought to be extremely ugly because too plain so the whole Georgian uh, architectural style fell out of fashion uh, in, in favour of a more Gothic uh, uh, experience and that's partly due, it, see, it would seem, to the fact that the competition, the architectural competition to rebuild the Houses of Parliament after the fire in 1834 was won um, by Barry who had a, a Gothic um, uh, plan and so the, the tastes change and those of us, I mean I think Will is in a difficult position because he's creating uh, taste we simply can look back and enjoy the paradoxes and the struggles, and you know, and of course the victor always wins, as it were. And, and we can look back and we can think. Well, I can look back and think. Look, the Dukes of Bedford were pretty dictatorial, actually. I mean, not, not, not in the way, not in a the kind. Of, they, they only had certain estates in London, um, but they were fairly dictatorial about what could or could not happen. But then you look and you think, well, actually, even they had to. Um, they didn't have a completely free hand in how the houses were built on their estate. For example, the other day, I'm I'm working at the moment in um, the archives, Of the British Museum, it's own the archives of its own history, as it were, Um, and I'll let you to a secret, which is that the way that you it's wonderful the way you get into the archive room is through a secret door, two secret doors actually, uh, from the galleries in the British Museum. Uh, If you look in Gallery Two, it's got it's got mm, it's got glass uh, walls round with 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 books, but one panel is dummy books, book packs, and it's a secret door into the archives. (laughs) And the other secret door is also, similarly, uh, uh, it's in in the Enlightenment Gallery, the old King's Library. So look, for the the only clue is there's a tiny little bell push (laughs) at the side of these hidden doors. Anyway, in the (laughs) the archives, I'm I'm just so thrilled to have discovered this (laughs) and to be sitting in there. But in the archives, for example, in the 1820s, when Montague House, which was the old um, manor house which had been given to the country as the British Museum in 1753, um, but it was being uh, uh, well, it was being built round and then demolished, and the British Museum, as we now have it, was being built um, from the 1820s to the 1840s. took 20 years to build. Well, in the 1820s, when the the, the building was being started uh, on Great Russell Street. The Sir Robert Smirk, who became Sir Robert Smirk in the, in the course of this, uh, w- had plans for buildings at the back. That is, if you if you know your Bloomsbury, uh, leading on to what is now uh, Montague, it's always Montague Place. Um, and you know the British Museum goes through to the back, there's a back entrance at Montague Place, but that back building is much later. It's about 1911, I think. So it wasn't there. What you had was Georgian uh, houses along Montague Place. Uh, and they were of course on Duke of Bedford land, uh, and, uh, they, you know, the, 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 uh, tenants or the occupiers, there's a letter in the archives to the British Museum, a letter to the trustees who include the Lord Chancellor, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Right Honourable Speaker of the House of Commons, Lord this, the earl of the other, Um, and there's a a very polite letter from the occupiers of the houses along the back in Montague Place to your Lordships uh, saying, you know, we gather that you're intending a building, we know that the the British Museum is being, being built, but you're intending a building at the back, we have to make a petition Uh, that this will get in the way of our rights and our uh, interests. And the British Museum gets its lawyers onto this to well, I, wonder if, I wonder if this is right. And this goes on for several years in the correspondence. And in the end, a building was not built at that point. Much later, of course, those houses were demolished. And I haven't gone into the history of that. But at that point in the 1820s, uh, the British Museum smirk was not allowed to build towards the back because the law was invoked that um, people who had had... Uh, a right to light and air and space their gardens and so on for twenty years had that right in perpetuity and that seems to have been the, the, the highest legal minds of the day agreed with this and so even the British Museum couldn't build you know exactly as it wanted to at that time and much the same with the, with the Duke of Bedford well, what he wanted he didn't he didn't always get um, uh, even though he did get, bit, you know, um, the, 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 the he, it was his land, if you see what I mean. But even people whose land it is and you, who, who have the who have the say so, actually also have somebody else that they've got to concern, uh, consider and concern themselves with. And that I think is quite pleasing to look back upon. Although obviously at the time it must be very worrying for those poor residents who thought that perhaps they were they were going to have their life taken away by this big building. Um, and no doubt other residents who were um, pushed out at points at which their buildings were actually going to be demolished so it's always a kind of two way thing, um, but, but I like to look back upon it um, with interest, as it were. But I do think that those at the sharp end have got quite a, a, a task uh, on their hands. Uh, and in, in other words, what is going to happen now, what's going to happen in the immediate future. But as long as you do have um, rights, as it were, on both sides and a dialogue, then that's the, the way
0: forward. Julie, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The British <laughs> Museum has had. Similar problems to and <laughs> Lady here. Um, Will, do you lament Wren's grand design, and what about indeed um, greater controls on the quality of contemporary design?
3: Mm-hmm. I, I don't, uh, I, I not lament it at all. And I saying, I think we, we, we agree on this, that, uh, that to, for London to have had a, an implemented master plan, or series of master plans, w- would have been a disaster, and that is the character of London. And that's why there are books and films and, and, and all the rest of it, which give a, a particular point. Of course, however, there are set pieces within that melange of stuff, and I, I think that's, that is the character of, of, of what we live in, uh, and it's much better for that. So no, I don't regret that at all, but I think we have to remember that architects, um, they do practise their art or science, whatever you like to quote, um, in the absence of clients, You know, there's often an assumption that you only work when somebody asks you to work, but actually you're working all the time, and you will do exercises. Uh, think of Frank Lloyd Wright, his Mile High Tower. I mean, there's no way on earth. I'm not sure you can build it today, actually. Yes. But uh, uh, certainly at that time, you couldn't build it, or Boulay with the, with the, um, the monument, monument. To, to, to Newton. That was an impossibility. Uh-huh. I mean, you're thinking beyond what you know, and that's part of the art of what you do. Um, in the same way that I'm sure that lots of composers have lots of little ditties that duck, duck around their soul which never see the light of the day. but uh, you can't help it, in a, in, and what, what what upsets me is that it's not me. I think there's a lot of architects that actually are more interesting golf, but <laughs> so when you come down to the uh, I think it was offices that was mentioned in particular in a way, you know, the, the commercial architect is interested in golf and not all that, inter- and, and is interested in actually building buildings. But the buildings are actually—you think that they're designed? Of course, they are designed, but they're often controlled by market forces. So there's this thing called the letting agent, who advises the clients of the architects, and say, so, "Well, if it doesn't have floor, ceiling, glass, um, remember, 25 years ago, that would be difficult." They want smaller windows because that's what left. So uh, they're always working about 15 to 20 years behind what you can do. And so today you'll see, it, not only in this city, you'll see it all, all around the world, uh, office buildings which are floor to ceiling glass. Strange when you think about it, that um, the last thing you want and you're working at your computer screen is all that light, really. you can't see a thing. So they have all shades <laughs> down and of course <laughs> it also overheats but then of course we're all changing our attitude towards our energy consumption and therefore there are new laws in terms of uh, coming into place which makes it difficult to have all glass I haven't actually had this conversation with the letting agent yet let's see what they're going to do but um, nonetheless what I'm trying to say it's not always the architect's fault but who said it was? <laughs> just in case.
2: <laughs>
3: so, uh, the offices, there is a sort of... Uh, you do, I think with offices in particular, you can lose your identity, but that brings me on to the lady who's trying to put some obscene thing on her roof. <laughs> well, I th- personally, I think you should go ahead and uh, uh, do it. You have. You've just done it anyway. <laughs> well, well, good, good for you, because... If you think about, uh, say, a more historically protected place like uh, which, I, which I know very well, which is the city of Vienna, of course, a lot of the young architects have cut their teeth on putting funny things in and on roofs. It's a whole sort
1: of—it's
3: <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary because most people you walk around the streets, most people don't look up, of course, but uh, architects do, and one other people do, and. Uh, some wonderful things on the roof and it's another sort of layer of delight that actually reflects a whole sequence and historically I'm sure that one day one of your successors will write this sort of theory on (laughs) the Viennese roof as a phenomenon and it's rather interesting and they have to be very inventive so I hope your audition is going to be extremely inventive
0: I had a question to take up but before I do was there another question from the floor done here, another planning problem perhaps Thank you Um, it emerged actually from the introduction and then a number of ideas have come through which is why I want to ask the question and it's about the need to be comprehensive because the evolution of the city I've just finished reading The House by the River about 49 Bankside the evolution of the city to a great extent has accepted that change must happen when did we begin to want to keep control comprehensively of the past as well as of the future the need to see what was underneath us the need to do an archaeological exploration for every site and try to hold on to absolutely everything when did the nature of the city um, stop being tied to time and begin to uh, almost become frustrated by the, ne- the inability to hold on to it. And what's going to happen next? Thank you. And we have another question right on
6: the back. Hi. Um, apologies, I missed the first part of the lecture. So if you've covered this or it's not relevant, just tell me to shut up. But um, first of all, I'd like to ask. I mean, it seems to me that uh, planned cities suffer, suffer an even worse impact from motor cars which, and mo- machine vehicles which uh, are very hard to live with and conduct a street life with, and planned cities like Wren's Dream or Houseman aggravate that by the taxi, car, uh, taxi driver's dream of long straight, straight roads. And the second thing is... Um, policy at the moment is directed towards encouraging so-called brownfield development and leaving Greenfield alone, which at least in, say, East Anglia, which which isn't far from London by train, for instance, um, is a sort of agri-desert of open, empty, arable fields. It seems to me we lose a tremendous amount by the destruction of so-called brownfield sites and their levelling, their wiping clean as, as, you know, palimpsests. Uh, for that kind of development so if you can, any comments on that be welcome
0: Thank you both um, The urge for comprehensiveness and this almost curatorial approach to the city Leo, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think there's always been a fascination within the city uh, sort of throughout throughout centuries I, I know when Wren was building the foundations for St Paul's Cathedral he decided to dig down further than he needed to on the north uh, North east corner uh, and what fascinated him was, was, was the fact that actually Ludgate Hill had been underwater um, and also before him, just one generation before him Inigo Jones tried to in many ways uh, legitimise uh, his use of the classical architecture by, by uh, looking at Stonehenge and saying it was built by the Romans but in terms of just uh, sort of digging out under the city and and, and actually finding uh, sort of wonders and treasures, I think it's slightly more of a 19th century thing. Um, I mean, particularly sort of uh, when they were breaking through um, part of the rookeries in the sort of 1680s and times like that, they came across um, some extraordinary things. Uh, there's a, there's a great account, I think, in the Illustrated Times of of, of working around the the Wallbrook and coming through layers. And and uh, I think that understandably uh, informed the way that they were building on the latest layer up top um, I mean clearly sort of uh, once there was a sort of a governmental policy towards preservation and conservation that is that is um, certainly a 20th century invention and, and uh, I think it, it, it in some ways uh, I suppose uh, legalises what people were doing um, already um, uh, that there there has always been i think a, a sort of sense that london is a, a is a layered city um, and and uh, i 'm not too sure um, you know i, I think i 'm in two minds about whether whether sort of blanket policy it 's a good thing that you preserve everything just in case um, I think everything has to be in some ways treated uh, sort of case by case um, i think that's, that's that's pretty much what i mean uh, there is always endless news about uh, about something, and one side is outraged, and the other one sort of says, you know, bulldoze it right now. Um, and uh, I don't think that, 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 that we should stop having these arguments.
2: I'm just, I'm not an expert on this, but i have thought that, that uh, what Leo says is right. I think, and again, I think in the 19th century you get um, the, the beginnings of serious record keeping in a way. I mean, obviously, the um, um, Westminster Abbey and so on. records go right back. But you get a sort of historiographical sense very much. It's, it's, it's in the early 19th century that the whole idea of, of taking a census of the population for example, begins. 1801 was the first population census and then that and statistics and blue books and, and for example Marx, Karl Marx when he came over uh, to Britain in uh, 1849 and was busy working in the reading room at the British Museum on um, Das Kapital uh, w- w- where did he get his information from? He got it from statistical reports, um, British government parliamentary commissions and reports, there were endless commissions and reports into the factories and uh, all sorts of things all through the 19th century and so I think that kind of general sense of inquiry and of needing to do the thing properly and to write it down and keep notes and take account of things uh, is, 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 is something that, that grew exponentially in the 19th century so I suppose I would imagine that the same kind of interest it, 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 it evolves in, in terms of uh, uh, what's underneath us. Um, there's also a huge e- exponential increase in map making. example, people are making new maps partly to show that you know, that the London is growing in particular at uh, new maps every 10 15 years or something uh, until you get the Ordnance Survey map in the 1860s which is really precise so I think um, I, I'm not an expert but my sense is as, as he yeah. knows, is that it's during the 19th century that you get this um, really much more sort of professional approach to history uh, including the history under your
1: feet and I suppose same for the survey of London series which doesn't survey of London
0: and dare I ask for one minute on Brownfield, sorry.
3: Well, I just think we should build one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having great love for East Anglia, Norfolk in particular. Um, I don't want any of this stuff that we do litter that particular place. <laughs> 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 and uh, if, I, if I might say, on, on, on here, I, I suppose it was the 20th century, I and mean, it seems to me that the preservation and, uh, of stuff within this city was, uh, grew as tourism grew, because uh, many tourists go, as we all do, to go to, to other cities to actually observe the past. Mm-hmm. And if you just dug it up and thrown it away, no yes. good. But if you can preserve it, and I, I like uh, one reason I, I, I like it, apart from being a bit of a hoarder myself, um, is that it actually can make our lives quite difficult, and then you have to be more inventive. Therefore, uh, that that will be reflected within the work that you do. So, I, I welcome it. I'm all for it.
0: We don't have time for my question, which is as should be. Uh, thank you all for yours, and thank you especially to our panel: Leo Hollis, Rosemary Ashton, and Will Lawson.